Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killup, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. I'm excited about today's question. First, I want to say one of our favorite things is when listeners actually write in responses to our question, because as much as we love to talk to each other, we actually really love to hear from you and to know that you're a part of this conversation. Um, So that's just a plug for for please write to us. Um, And I want to share sort of two fan responses to an episode that we had. One of them is actually a correction on a a mistake. Oh, boy. And the second is a follow-up question that I think will take us in a really interesting direction um, and sort of become its own episode here so okay I love it so much when people write in because otherwise it you know sometimes just feels like we're sitting here we're talking to each other having a great time but maybe no one's listening and then when people write in it's amazing we know you're out there we know you're real um, so the first thing I want to say these are responses to our episode on can you make seltzer on Shabbos which I knew was a very important question and episode and it's just great to see that that the listeners agree with me on the importance of this important, important issue. You are not alone in your deep devotion to carbonated beverages. So first of all, I'll just say that we had a listener to write in to say, it sounds like Rabbi Avi Killip is drinking too much seltzer, <laughs> and I'm worried about her teeth. So I just want to say, thanks for caring. <laughs> um, and, and you know, this was actually a move away from Coca-Cola and into seltzer. So I'm, I am moving in the right direction, I believe. Water is just a few years away. I know. I'll consider it. All right. So this listener, um, who was a close listener and also uh, knows knows their chemistry, wrote in to tell us that within the episode, we talked about the way that you make seltzer um, is when you force CO2 into water and that the acid is formed is carbolic acid, but we were incorrect. It's actually carbonic acid. Oh, that sounds like a big mistake. So if you're making your own seltzer at home and you were using our episode as the recipe... <laughs> <laughs> I just want to clarify that because your seltzer is going to be really disgusting. Okay. Thank you for being alert out there to the right acids. No, but truly, we really, we really appreciate it, um, and we love the closest listening. So please keep sending us comments, big and small. Here's the second follow-up question for today. And it actually is picking up on what I thought was the most interesting and exciting aspect of that episode. So I'm really Grateful for the chance to dive more deeply into this question. Great. Let's hear it. The listener writes, This is a follow-up question to your episode on making seltzer on Shabbat. You mentioned in that answer that there's room to be lenient with regards to rules of food preparation on Shabbat if one is hosting guests for a meal. Is that indeed the case? If so, what are the limits to that concept? And what I particularly love about this question is that they also included a very specific example. This is like where you say, asking for a friend. Right. (laughs) Hypothetically, the questioner writes, for example, could one use a shinui? Um, And we actually have a whole episode on that. If you want to learn more about that, you could go look it up. Could one use a shinui to lower the temperature setting of a crock pot that was accidentally left too hot before Shabbos if it means saving the main food you plan to serve from becoming burnt and inedible? Amazing. This is like a meta episode on an episode. Uh, It's fantastic. It's a really interesting category. I'm glad we'll get the chance to talk about it. 
Maybe just to say a word first about why I think it's surprising to the listener. There feels like there's something very subjective about, oh, I'm like feeling uncomfortable or I don't want to, you know, embarrass someone. And that feels very kind of not concrete. We're used to a lot of things in halakha sort of playing out of, well, like, is this cooking or is it not cooking? Or is this something you're allowed to do on Shabbat or not to do on Shabbat? The notion that you might live in like a parallel universe where it's an issue if there's not guests, but it's not an issue if there is guests, I think is rightly surprising. And the search for some parameters to not just let that run away with itself feel important. Feels yeah. Important. And I think also one of the things that allows us to enter into Shabbat and keep our boundaries is that we don't think of ourselves as bending rules on Chavez, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it just doesn't matter how much I want to get in the car and drive somewhere. I'm just not going to do that if it's Shabbat. So the idea that there's something that I wouldn't do that I'm going to now allow myself to do because of desperation. Right. Or um, what if it's like, well, I can't work on Shabbat, but if I'm really busy, right, then I can. That, it's that exactly. entire discourse that a lot of times mitzvot is coming to shut down. I can think of uh, really kind of three main cases come to mind here that play this out and help us maybe get some uh, parameters on this. And it's really interesting to see how far back the notion of guess as a factor goes. It goes all the way back to the Mishnah. So 2,000 years ago, really first moment we're getting any meaningful codification of Jewish law after the, after the Torah. Uh, and the Mishnah has a case where it says – you're allowed to move four to five containers of straw or grain or things that you have lying around. In order to make space for guests or because if not moving them would somehow lead to the canceling of learning or teaching or some other kind of public Torah study. So what seems like it's going on here? You've got this room that you're using to store all your stuff that you have nowhere else to put. And suddenly you realize, oh, it's Shabbat. I'm having guests over. Or we want to have a shear in here where someone teaches yeah. a class. There's nowhere to do it. And you are, for that purpose, the Mishnah seems to say, allowed to move this stuff out of there. Now, the implication of the Mishnah seems to be this is an activity we would not normally allow you to do, meaning you can't spend Shabbat afternoon reorganizing your closets, moving all kinds of heavy things, deciding to move your washing machine from this side of the laundry room to the other side, even though there's no milacha per se involved in that. There's no like physical transformation of the world, no commerce that's happening. Nonetheless, it's too much sort of physical activity or stuff related to not Shabbat time and mentality for you to do it. But for guests, you can. This is literally the text behind your favorite activity, moving the chairs to set up for Minyan. Exactly. <laughs> Where would I be without this Mishnah? It's the number one Hadar activity. <laughs> Now, what do you think? I'm curious. Like, if I ask you, so it, it seems like, yeah, you shouldn't do this activity, but you can do it for guests or, you know, cancellation of Torah study. When you hear that, do you hear, oh, that's because guests is like a very special category? Or those are examples 
of Shabbat-related activities that you might need it for. Like, in other words, maybe even without guests, you know, your family wants to spread out and have more space, and there's a bunch of boxes you haven't unpacked from your recent move. Uh, you know, can you move them just to sort of make the, the house look nicer? Um, what's, what's your take when you hear this text? Is it, oh, you would never be allowed to do this if not for guests? Or, no, no, for a Shabbat purpose, like guests. Yeah, it's a great question. It also makes me wonder if the guest aspect is a unexpected guests, right? Because if mm-hmm. I knew I was having guests, shouldn't I have set up the chairs correctly in advance? Um, or is it, yeah, just having guests means I can go pull the chair out of the storage room to set the table, and it's actually fine to set up the table on Chavez. It's not that I forgot to set it up before. Um, like, is this a loophole, or is this a, you know, really, actually, it's fine to set the table on Shabbat morning for Shabbat lunch? Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. There's kind of two dimensions here. You're asking about what's the parameter of the guest? What kind of guest is this? And what was my plan with them? And yeah, what's the... Uh, basic idea here that's driving this, right? Which is probably related to the parameters. I would say in the Mishnah alone, I'm not sure it's completely clear. Like you could read the Mishnah Mm -hmm. in a number of different directions, but the Talmud jumps in and places on this Mishnah some statements by Rabbi Yochanan uh, and then Rav Dimi of Neharda'ah, where they say, oh, welcoming guests, is as great as Torah study. And maybe it's even better than Torah study because the Mishnah lists it first before Mm -hmm. Torah study. And once they start to use that language, it sounds like, oh, these are really exceptional activities that merit tremendous reward. And then the Talmudic passage goes on to say, welcoming guests is as great as, you know, uh, welcoming the presence of God and the story about Avraham and the guests and the tent and all of that, which is beyond our discussion here. That makes it sound like um, this is a special exception granted for this specific act of kindness, religious devotion, etc. I actually love it. it. It feels really central to me, actually. It feels like one of the things that makes Shabbat Shabbat um, to be able to have a tradition that tells us not just we should observe and remember Shabbos, but actually we are meant to do it in community that have, you know, having guests over showing up at other people's houses as a guest is actually like an essential piece of what it is to celebrate Shabbat. Um, And especially the comparison to Torah study, where we sometimes feel like, ugh, if I were good, I would go study. But instead, I'm going to hang out with my friends Mm -hmm. on a Shabbat afternoon is actually to say these are like, that's another way of welcoming God's presence into your home on a Shabbat afternoon is to sit with your friends. Doing that activity on Shabbat uplifts the friendship actually and makes it into something holy and sacred. And it's really beautiful. Yeah. So that seems to be like the idea that the Talmud puts behind this. We still have to come back to your parameters question. Like what kind of guest does that? Is it a house guest like who's from out of town and you're putting them up? Or is it someone coming over to play a board game in the afternoon? Like what are the what are the parameters? And then the other parameters, of course, are how far can I go? Can I just boil a pot of water because they want some tea? Great. So let me give you a second case here and then one attempt to kind of extrapolate. I think that'll help move us forward here. So the Mishnah in Beitzah, a totally separate section, uh, the first one was from Shabbat, 
um, talks about a different case of basically you've got to get a lot of wine from one house to another. This I is, love that this is a common trope in the Talmud. It's like, what did they do back then? They just moved their <laughs> wine from one house to another. You know? They got a, they lot, a of lot of wine. A lot of wine they got to move. It was more diluted and more liquid. So I think also, it I think took they didn't have plumbing. So yes, I have it, to remember that. Yes. So <laughs> in any event, they've got uh, they've got stuff basically. They got to move from one house to another. This seems like it's for a Yom Tov meal. Um, and the Mishnah says you shouldn't bring them in the normal way. In other words, basically, if you would normally have like a heavy box with 10 bottles of wine, for instance, don't just bring that over that way. Take one bottle, put it in a canvas bag on your shoulder, carry another in your hand, like make it seem like a sort of lower grade operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not like a normal commercial-like act of moving things, loading and unloading, if you will, that you would do during the week. that's that's the Mishnah's rule. Mm-hmm. This but is Shinui. This is the concept of it's Shinui. It's some kind of Shinui, right, with this sort of moving. And here, too, the Talmud comes in and says, Im lishanot mutar. But if you can't change uh, the normal way you do it, then it's okay to do it the regular way. Now, the question is, what does that mean if you can't, right? Yeah. So... The Rambam just seems to understand that as, uh, for whatever reason, like you can't get it done in time or logistically it's not the kind of thing you can carry in your hand, whatever it is. But Rashi jumps in there and says, what does it mean that, you know, you can't pull it off in the unusual way? For example, if you invited a lot of guests and you got to bring a lot quickly. In other words, imagine you go to Shul, you invite like 10 people over and then you realize, oh, I'm going to need like this whole carton of stuff from downstairs. I'm going to get out my dolly and I'm going to, you know, bring it up the ramp that I've set up. Rashi makes it sound like the reason you're allowed to do that and a reason you're allowed to do it is for guests. So this is then, at least in Rashi's understanding of this, yet another example of an exception to normal rules that are allowed for guests. And is your understanding of this that the reason we need this rule is because it's sort of like lest you not invite guests over? Like lest you stand at shul and say, I only have two bottles of wine. I can't invite that extra family of six to join us. But if I can bring it up, I can invite them. It's super interesting. The sources here, and there could be others I'm not aware of, don't go into that sort of motivation for the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's almost just a reflexive sense of, well, it's super important to have these guests based on that other Talmudic passage. So that must have some force. There's some thumb on the scale. But it's really interesting what you're asking. Like, is there a fear behind it also, right? We want to really anchor this. I don't know. And the first text you gave us was not about food, but this one is about food. Is there any commentary or distinction here that this is about the food? Or, yeah, can, or we m- can also schlep the chairs from downstairs. It, yeah, it might be uh, that these different cases are local. And as I said, Rambam on this case doesn't necessarily think the exception has anything to do with guests at all. And that's probably the gap into which the next source jumps. The Trumata Deshen, Yisrael Yisrlein, uh, who lives in uh, in the late Middle Ages, um, he expands this. He's the first one to give us parameters, a little bit of a principle of where does this apply, like to what kind of actions and to what kind of guests. So here's what he says. He says, any case where you have a precedent where you would allow 
a non-milacha restriction on Shabbat to be lifted. So there are a lot of things that are forbidden on Shabbat that they're not really a transformative action of milacha in the world. Uh, they're called a shvut. They're kind of part of the atmospherics of the day. One of those things is like schlepping things around. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some ways, that category expands to be all kinds of things that are maybe only forbidden on a rabbinic level, even if they're actions. Um, he says, anytime that's allowed to be suspended for a mitzvah, you can sub in guess as an override, as like a, you know, a, a kind of mitzvah. Um, is he saying welcoming guests is, is, a, is a mitzvah? Meaning, yeah, I feel like that's, that's how we teach our kids, right? That's right. Welcoming guests. I think he's not even saying just that. I think he's saying it's a high level of uh-huh. mitzvah relatively, but you can certainly put it in that category. Now, that may be like a restricted case. Like, you know, a, a typical sort of thing is uh, you're allowed to, let's say, ask someone not Jewish to do something that's only rabbinically forbidden on Shabbat for the sake of a mitzvah or for someone who's really not feeling well or, you know, any sort of category like that. He'll say, you can do that also because you need something for your guests, right? Um, And this is not the place to go into all the cases in halachic literature where that comes up, but that's a category, kind of leniencies for a mitzvah that you take with respect to certain Shabbat actions. The Trumat Adeshan says that's true for a need that arises from guests. I I just feel like even on the meta level, like the really, really big level is to say it's a great example for us to look at, to point to, to try to understand about halachic practice that you're, it is so not individual and siloed, right? Like your halachic practice mm-hmm. is actually dependent and conditional on the needs of the people standing around you. Um, and there's no way around that, actually. You don't get to say like, well, that's not a thing I do on Shabbos. It's not my practice to bring up chairs. Well, if somebody needs to sit, it's not for you to say, mm-hmm. I don't bring up chairs on Shabbos. It's like they need they need a seat, and that is as important or more important than your need to not schlep, um, and you have to take that seriously. But I also appreciate the boundary of the non-malacha. So just that's to clarify, right. that's like there are some things, there are some red lines, there are some things that are actually forbidden, and that's the line of like, okay, so obviously wants tea, just make a pot of tea. Is like, well, okay, there are some lines. That's right, you can't do that, and I'm not sure we can get into all the parameters of the chillant example uh, brought up here because that can be complicated based on a lot of other factors in that case. But you wouldn't be allowed to do anything vis-a-vis the chalent that would be understood to be a core basic violation of Shabbat related to cooking, right? If it was something potentially that was like, well, we don't do that because of the optics and because of this or that, there might be some room, but it would be the kind of thing where a mitzvah would be overriding it. This could be that kind of mitzvah. Right. You can't say the chalent was ruined, so I'll whip up some omelets. That for sure you can't. <laughs> and there will be times, as you say, part of the boundaries are, yeah, sometimes the food may be ruined and you won't be able to do anything for the guests because it's not at that level. It's not pikuach nefesh. It's not saving someone's life, right? right. Um, and so Shabbat is not going to be superseded. But here's the rollback. The Truman Adeshan says the whole category of guests is only for people who are sleeping over at your house. In Mm. other words, the thing we're talking about here is someone who effectively right now doesn't have anywhere to live. They they can't go home and eat lunch They can't go home, right? They're with you. You have taken them in. Then 
that's a whole other level of you sort of needing to rearrange your house. Um, and like not to diss on people having, uh, you know, guests over for lunch, but he basically says, you know, if you just invite someone over for a meal, that's not a serious category. Um, and the Beit Yosef, Rav Yosef Kara, when he's commenting on that, is like, everyone understands that there's no mitzvah whatsoever in just inviting someone over for a meal. Okay, now this huh. is a major rollback. We can talk about it. There are other voices that might not have seen that, but there is a really interesting sense. I think the Truman audition is trying to actually zero in on the difference between when having a guest over is just sort of part of enjoyment of life. Um, and yeah, it might be like part of your Oneg Shabbat, as opposed to when it's an act of care for someone with a heightened standard of vulnerability. Like, even if someone's got a house and they have a perfectly comfortable life, when they stay with you for Shabbat, there is this whole other dynamic of you're really like housing and feeding that person in a way that they can't just go home if they didn't like what you served. Yeah. So what if I walked 45 minutes to North Riverdale? Do you think that counts? <laughs> so I think that's where, interestingly, like you could start to say, what's the real meaning of these categories? Is sleeping over really means sleeping over or it means the ease of having some access to other things. But it's trying to get us to think about that, right? Yeah, I do. I think that's meaningful. Um, it takes us out of the... I'm embarrassed because I served you bad food and into a place of, does this person actually need something to eat today? Mm -hmm. um, it reminds us actually that it's about them and it's not about you. Yeah. You might have to say, I'm sorry, you got to go home to your own apartment, which is, you know, in the building and you'll be fine and you're not going to start. Right. Yeah. And there's something I think very powerful about the notion of you host someone in your home in that way in a way where they're staying over or maybe they don't have that access or is a three hour walk and they're not going to get home till after Shabbat, right? There could be any number of other scenarios like that, that that transforms the experience into a seudat mitzvah, like actually some degree of a meal with religious significance beyond, Hey, want to come over? That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. I also think um, as a person who has sort of lived parts of my life within the world of halachic observance and communities that are halachically observant and and also in communities that are not. It is certainly the case that overnight Shabbos guests is more common in halachically observant homes. And actually that sort of creates its own totally different, sometimes totally different feeling experience that people who don't have that restriction of you can't drive don't end up staying in someone's home for Shabbos. Um, they only have a, a meals version of being hosted. They don't know That's what it's right. like to have the sort of 25-hour version plus, you know, of being hosted and or of hosting. Um, and that it's a different it's a different kind of mitzvah and it feels different. You can sort of feel the quality of the visit change. Yeah, we see that. I think we see that at work here. So summing up so far, what we've got is there is a notion of guess, but it seems like it only overrides peripheral kind of restrictions around Shabbat, let's say, or atmospheric ones. And for guests that are at a reasonably high level of dependence on you. That's at least where it ends up in the Ramar of Moshe Isserlis and his comments on the Shulchan Aruch. He cites that basic approach of the Trumat Adeshen, uh, and that's the approach. But I want to give a third case, which I think gives us another angle, and this actually brings us back to the Seltzer example, which was really like this last one. So let's go to a totally different example. Salting meat. Not on Shabbat. 
We're talking about meat and salting it in order to remove the blood, okay? And this is something Shmuel in the Talmud says you have to do in order to uh, essentially adhere to the biblical prohibition on not consuming blood. And then there's, as you can imagine, a huge debate. How long do you have to salt the meat? How long does the meat have to sit in the salt in order to fulfill that requirement? It's just like basic recipe or it's like halachically how long? Halachically, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And truth be told, some of the versions of the halachic requirements would probably turn up the noses of many chefs and uh, connoisseurs of meat uh, in terms of oversalting the flavor yeah. of the meat. So the chefs would probably prefer the Rambam, who says 18 minutes and you're done. You just put the salt on for 18 minutes. It's a great minutes, number. And that's it. Exactly. There's another view of the Tosafot. It's the amount of time it would take you to roast the meat. There's a view of the riff, which is the time it would take you to slaughter the animal, flay it, check for forbidden fat, and all the other forbidden parts. That's probably a it lot longer like a period long time. of time. <laughs> the most popular practice that emerged in Ashkenaz was one hour. You put the meat for one hour in salting, then you rinse it, and then you move on with the rest of the preparation. So you can imagine, I don't know what your house looks like on Friday afternoon, sometimes you plan things out and you don't quite have an hour for something you thought you were going to have an hour for. Hmm. In my family, this comes up with how long is the challah going to rise before it absolutely has to go into the oven or it won't be cooked That's exactly right, okay? (laughs) So, but here, in that case of the challah, it's essentially... How bad will the challah come out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Here, it's actually a religiously loaded question of the practice is to salt meat for an hour. But if I adhere to that, what if I'm going to miss the deadline for Shabbat and the result will be I won't be able to eat this meat for Shabbat or the other case that comes up, also raised by the Trumat HaDeshen, that same source we just talked about, is what if you're having a lot of guests and essentially your menu has expanded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff that you've got to do. And if you do the meat for 18 minutes, a la the Rambam, you'll get it done. If you do it for an hour, you will not. So it's we start with a question that sounds like, should you ben kashrut for Shabbat or ben Shabbat, i.e. not have your meat? For the sake of the kashrut. But then we throw a curveball third factor of hachnas adorchim and welcoming guests. Exactly. And the Trumat Adeshen says, and it actually seems like here, the hachnas adorchim might even apply not on Shabbat. Like if the deadline is they're coming over ah. and you need to feed them by a certain time, the Trumat Adeshen says the factor of guests allows you to follow the standard of the Rambam of 18 minutes, which is a lot shorter than the hour. And to be clear, for someone who thinks and generally practices salting meat for an hour, the experience of salting meat for 18 minutes, like I'm not sure I would say that feels trafe 100%, but it doesn't feel good. Right, It does feel like a kind of bending of the law. And yet the true meditation is saying, you're allowed because of the uh, issue of guests uh, to be lenient here. Now, here I think it's pretty clear. I don't 
think the definition of guests here is operating as uh, restricted to people who are staying over and being hosted. Mm -hmm. Because Shabbat is another parallel factor here that has nothing to do with that. And it just seems like this is an example where an extenuating factor of wanting to make something nicer or better, whether for the honor of Shabbat or for guests, allows you not to override the law, which is like the first two examples we had. It's like you shouldn't schlep stuff around. Okay, you're allowed to. Here, you're not overriding the law. You're following a version of halachic ruling that you wouldn't normally follow. Can I just clarify, um, you can follow the more lenient opinion here or you should follow the more lenient opinion here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think the language of the Trumat Adeshan here is just allowing you to, but I do think it actually starts to shade into some notion of you probably should, but I'm not sure there's such an unequivocal statement in that regard. Mm-hmm. But this notion that Actually, another way of thinking about guests is not that they give you some warrant for behavior that would otherwise be forbidden, but they give you some warrant for thinking a little more expansively around what are your halachic options. And this goes back to the Seltzer example, where we really just threw this out at the end, where based on this background, which I'm so happy we're able to kind of unpack here, I was suggesting you can imagine having a strict line on not preparing seltzer on Shabbat, but having enough respect for the religious coherence of the lenient opinion that you would rely on that opinion when there are guests. And I would say I would apply that kind of thinking even to a lunch guest, right, who is not staying over, because you're not at the level of saying, I'm going to actually take a leniency with this halacha writ large because of guests. It's that I'm going to rely on a perfectly legitimate view that happens not to be the dominant way I do it. It's also a beautiful example of why you should learn halacha. Like, why do we need to know all the opinions, right? Why isn't Responsa Radio a very short podcast? Hey, Ethan, can I make seltzer on Jabez? No. Done. <laughs> or yes. Done. Yeah. Um, that actually, you you know, there, in order to live a halachically observant life, we need to know all these different conceptions and, you know, we're sort of always figuring out what needs to be bent. And in order to do that, we actually need to know all of the different opinions so that we can know when to say, I'm holding by the Rambam here, you know, or I'm going by my normal practice, or I usually wait six hours, but for some reason in this case, I'm going to bend it and rely on another opinion. Um, You can't do that unless you actually know those opinions. Yeah, I think it beautifully goes back to your point earlier about the ways in which we don't live uh, in a kind of normative island on our own, independent of relationships. And there's a way in which I might even add to what you just said as the reason to be kind of comfortable with and exposed to a variety of halachic ideas and practices is itself actually a manifestation of concern for relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. Because if you are going to negotiate those relationships with other people and you're also going to maintain your religious integrity, you actually need some degree of agility to understand how to do those things together 
it's only this appreciation for the multi-vocal, many voices aspect of halakha that can enable you to do that. Yeah, and just to to also clarify that this happens, this need to take into account other people's needs actually is not exclusive to living in communities where people have different observance and different practices. Even if everybody that you're having over you know, follows exactly the same POSEC and exactly the same decisions, these kind of things still come up and we still need to actually know the different opinions and understand the sort of deeper multivalent conversation. Yes, at least for the mere mortals among us who have problems with time management. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It doesn't say, get your act together and salt your meat in the morning. (laughs) You won't have this problem. (laughs) I'm sure we have at least a few listeners who are like, what's the matter with these people? Can't you just plan it out in advance and have it work out? But I will say in response, we are in good company with the Trumara Deshen and the Ramah and some other great under-planning rabbis. Uh, nothing new under the sun, right? It's all, it's all ancient. It's all part of the Shabbos practice. Exactly. I think I would say there's a lot of things we could take away from this episode, but I will leave everyone with the charge to consider having someone over for Shabbos this week. How about that? That sounds like a good and attainable goal. Thanks. When you've got friends right beside you Till the end, how blessed are we Real good friends that you can count on Real friends like family Have a halakhic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at responsaradio at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. When you've got friends you can count on Good friends and family